This is Energy Cast, and I'm Jay Dowenhauer. Today we are talking about the Trump Perry Energy Team and what that means for policy over the next four or eight years. And if you want to skip the monologue and head straight to the interview, that begins at 6:15. The main focus of today's show will be our new Energy Secretary, former Texas Governor Rick Perry. Secretary Perry was confirmed by the Senate on March 2nd, and the interview today was conducted about a week after that vote. Now, if you thought congressional gridlock was the worst it's ever been getting an energy secretary confirmed for an incoming president, you're right. With the exception of George H.W. Bush, every other nominee has been confirmed within days of that president's inauguration. Perry was governor for over 12 years, first taking over after George W. Bush became president. Living in Austin during those years, I met Governor Perry twice. Once was at a clean coal conference we hosted. He was the keynote speaker. The other was at a Mexican restaurant a few years before. I was meeting my girlfriend for dinner, and when I arrived at the table, I saw her chatting up the governor and his wife Anita a few booths down. Bear in mind, the governor is always guarded by two Texas Rangers. When she came back to the table, I was like, so you just know the governor like that? And she goes, yeah, my parents helped him out when he ran for agriculture commissioner. Well, all right. A few minutes later, Rick comes over to our booth and I say to him, governor? And he puts his hand on my shoulder and says, you treat her right. Yes, sir. Now, many of you may remember Governor Perry flubbing a point during the 2012 presidential race. It's three agencies of government when I get there that are gone. Commerce, education, and the, um, uh, what's the third one there? Let's see. I can't. The third, sorry. Oops. That department he wanted to close? The Department of Energy. So you can imagine when it came time to vet this nominee, some of his critics may have been a little skeptical. Perry's confirmation was held January 19th and ran three and a half hours. So with plenty of caffeine and windshield time, I listened to the hearing in the car a few days ago and pulled some of my favorite clips. Now, the governor got the presidential debate line that I played earlier off the table as quickly as he could. Let's play that. My past statements made over five years ago about abolishing the Department of Energy do not reflect my current thinking. In fact, after being briefed on so many of the vital functions of the Department of Energy, I regret recommending its elimination. During the confirmation, he emphasized the important work of the various research labs across the country, some of them you may know, such as Oak Ridge or Los Alamos. I support the academic and the government mission of basic research, even when you may not see the results of that for a generation. This was amid an earlier report that the administration had plans to gut the labs and the various research programs within the department. Let's hear his response to that. Well, Senator, maybe they'll have the same experience I had and forget that they uh, said that. But uh, We're counting on you. <laughs> We're counting on you to educate the, the uh, incoming president. 
Now, there are a few moments he probably wishes he could take back, like this little exchange from Senator Stuart Smalley. Uh, I mean, Al Franken. Governor, uh, Senator. thank you so much for coming into my office. Uh, did you enjoy meeting me? <laughs> I, I hope you were as much fun on that dais as you were on your couch. Uh, well... <laughs> May, may I rephrase that, sir? Please. 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 Oh, my Lord. Oh, my Lord. Well, I think we found our Saturday Night Live soundbite. <laughs> yeah, my Austin friends loved that one. Uh, and after all of that, Franken didn't even vote for the guy. But one of my favorite exchanges was with a senator and politician I have a lot of respect for, former West Virginia Governor Joe Manchin. I once shared a panel with him at a conference in Washington, D.C. in 2009. And now, Senator Manchin, a Democrat, never forgets where he came from. He lamented the fact that renewable technologies make up 12% of the nation's electricity portfolio, but take a lion's share of the research dollars. If you do the coal, which we do in West Virginia, we do the natural gas, and nobody likes it, but they sure as heck use it. Yeah. Okay, and that's all I hear about. And then they want us to make it cleaner, but they say we can't make it cleaner. Well, when you don't have any commitment from the federal government to do what they say they want to do and give us the money to find the next technology, yeah. the next research, or research through technology, that we can get to that next level, then don't continue to berate us because you're not going to do it any other way. You need us. You just don't like us. Don't get me confused with the previous administration. Perry was approved by the committee 16 to 7 and later by the Senate 62 to 37. Eleven Democrats crossed the aisle for Perry, including Senator Manchin. I'll close this out with some final thoughts from Perry. I'm not going to sit here in front of you and tell you we got everything right every day uh, in the state of Texas. But by and large... It was a very well-managed place. My guest today is Jeff Merrifield, partner at Pillsbury, a law firm in D.C. Jeff is a lawyer by trade, Georgetown graduate, and served as a nuclear regulatory commissioner during the Clinton and George W. Bush administrations. I met Jeff earlier that day after he spoke at one of the many networking events hosted by E4 Carolinas, an energy trade association. E4 is headed up by David Doctor, and this man deserves tremendous credit for this region being one of the best in the country for energy companies. In fact, many of the companies I profile on this podcast are ones I met through E4. We sat down following Jeff's presentation to talk about the Trump-Perry energy policy, politics in Washington, and a little about Jeff's past at the NRC. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jeff Merrifield. We listened to your uh, presentation you gave earlier. You spoke about the slow confirmation of energy appointees, Secretary of Energy, on down. What repercussions will that have? I think it has a couple of impacts. One, a general uncertainty of what's going to happen with our government. And this is something which has gotten, I think, worse and worse since the mid-90s, where we make it more and more difficult for people to become part of a president's administration and get them through the appointments process. I think the more recent decision to really slow down 
down on the confirmation of both the energy secretary as well as many of the other cabinet positions is going to have, obviously, much longer term impacts than over just the Trump administration. It doesn't bode very well for the next time we have another Republican president or Democratic president. From a practical standpoint, the degree to which that slows down means that there are many decisions that need to be made by the Department of Energy and other departments and agencies. And that really, for lack of a better word, really gums up the works. Rules, actions that need to be taken to protect public health, the environment, keeping the government on track are really going to get slowed down. And that makes it difficult for everyone involved. Let's talk about what it looks like at DOE right now. There's just a bunch of empty offices, no, appointees there, who aren't there's, there. There's, no, no, no. There, How so, does that work? It's a couple of different layers. Secretary Rick Perry has been confirmed. So he is in office. He has David McIntyre, who is his chief of staff. The other appointed slots, Deputy Secretary, Undersecretary, the many uh, assistant and deputy secretaries, virtually all of those have full-time civil servants who are temporarily appointed those positions to try to keep government moving as best it can. From a policymaking standpoint, however, they're not really moving forward with a lot of initiatives because those really have to get the buy-in of the secretary and the president. And there are an insufficient number of political appointees who are there to vet those decisions and allow them to move forward. There's a lot of people who are probably going to be listening who are actively seeking NETL dollars, EERE, all those grant and funding programs. Right. Is is that on hold right now? My sense is that some of them will move along, and, and the mechanizations of government do continue to move despite the occupant being a Republican or a Democrat. So I think in the main, probably a lot of those will continue to move. There may be some slowdowns, which I can't foresee, but maybe some slowdowns in some because of the lack of a full bench strength team. Let's talk about what we can expect from a Secretary Perry. I've spent a lot of time in Texas. I think we'll probably still call him governor, even yeah. though he's there. Now, one of the things that I think he talked about when he was confirmed is that he he will be very active with the programs. He does want to see R&D move forward. I don't think he wants to be a hatchet man. Right. Is that what you're kind of getting? Yeah, that's my sense as well. When he was governor, obviously he managed one of the largest top 10, top 12 governments in the world. Very good understanding of the bureaucratic process and how to make things work and how to create savings. One of the things which I think is a big surprise for whomever takes that position as Secretary of Energy is really where the priorities are of that department. You know, a lot of people think of the Department of Energy is a department responsible for renewable nuclear policies, oil and gas. When the Secretary of Energy gets up in the morning, probably the six of the top 10 things that that person has to think about have something to do with nuclear weapons. The second largest one is the environmental cleanup mission. That is a, a significant amount of money, billions each year spent on cleaning up the legacy of our nuclear weapons program from the work that was done dating back to the very uh, middle of the end of, of World War II. Those two together, nuclear weapons and environmental management make up in excess of 60% of the budget of DOE. And so that's really where the priority of his time is going to be is going to be taken. I'd layer on top of that the individual national labs, the missions that they have. You know, DOE is considered the premier science organization of the United States government. As you mentioned in his confirmation hearings, he spoke quite favorably about those skill sets and how he wants to be supportive. And so I think those are going to be things that are going to take up a fair amount of his time as well. And then when all that is said and done, probably oil and gas will come next. Obviously, it is a very consumer-dependent product. When the price of gas goes up 10 or 20 cents, it makes a difference. And I think that's something that he will be quite comfortable with, something will take a fair amount of his time and energy. Rick Perry is a, a lifelong politician, Texas A&M graduate, still wears the ring. They all do, all those Aggies do. He was Ag Commissioner, Governor, and, and now he's DOE Secretary. Other than loyalty to Trump, what did Trump see? What did his people see in Rick Perry that said, this guy should be Energy Secretary? I think there are a couple of 
of different reasons why he picked Rick Perry. One is, with this president, the people-to-people contact is really important. All of those candidates who were interviewed for those positions were interviewed directly by President Trump. Rents Priebus was typically in those meetings as well in his role as chief of staff. And it was a very conversational moment for Rick Perry and his counterparts. You know, it was really Trump wanting to know what makes them think what they find interesting. So that was number one. Was there a chemistry between the president and Rick Perry? And obviously there must have been. The second one is, in the case of DOE, it is a large, highly complicated bureaucracy. And I think Trump wanted to have the confidence that he would be able to pick someone who was able and capable of running something of that nature. There have been energy secretaries who have done very poorly because of a failure to understand that organizational dynamic. In Rick Perry's point, he's run you know a very large bureaucracy. I know they probably don't like to call it bureaucracy in Texas, but it is what it is. And, and he's run that in Texas and, and got generally pretty favorable grades for having done so. The third one is just a background in, in energy issues. Texas is a vitally important energy state from an oil and gas standpoint. Texas has the largest number of wind generation facilities in the country, and so he has a, a very good understanding of renewables. Finally, I would say Texas has got four nuclear power plants, which operate very well. So Secretary Perry was very familiar with the operation of those units. And I know personally, given work that he did with our law firm, I was very supportive of advanced nuclear technologies, including fusion. We worked with him directly. So I think he's probably got a broader understanding than I think some folks would give him. And I think he'll he'll show that medal when he really hits his feet and starts to stride at DOE. Some secretaries of energy are usually more academic. Stephen Chu comes to mind. Yeah. Do you think that Perry would have to book up a little bit on the nuclear component of it? Because you said a lot of people go into DOE not really thinking about the nuclear. It's almost a DOD issue yeah. really more than, than what you would think of as energy. Do. Well, there's no question that there's going to be a lot of things that they do at DOE which will be unfamiliar to him. He'll have a bit of a learning curve. Anyone would. I think he's capable of doing it. I personally don't believe it's necessary or a requirement to have a PhD in nuclear energy as the head. There are a lot of technical folks as a very deep base of knowledge at DOE who can help flesh up the information for him to make decision making. Who he surrounds himself with and who he and the president choose for those other appointed positions at undersecretary, assistant secretary level are going to be important because that will provide part of the supportive structure to make sure that the whole enterprise works appropriately. You said that you didn't think that some of these appointees will be confirmed almost to the end of Q4. It almost Potentially, like, right? yeah, we could see these things drag out throughout the course of the year. No, that's exactly right. You've been beating around DC for a long time. It used to not be that long, right? Oh, it is unprecedented, the delay of the appointment of people running our government. It really is. Purely political, or is there any question about the competency of these? It's, it's political, right? In fairness, I think that there are some individuals who've been appointed by President Trump that members of the Democratic Party would say they have concerns about their competence to be in those positions. I don't share those views, but I appreciate them. I do think that politics does play a part. There are calls uh, among some who are very angry about President Trump acceding to the office of the presidency, who are basically saying we need to do everything we can to delay and stop these initiatives going forward. And delaying those nominations is just one piece of that strategy. I, I just don't think that's right. Republican or, or Democrat, I think we at least need to allow the president to have his or her team 
in place, and then that president will rise and fall based on the merits. I think it is too political to simply delay and delay and delay where, where very important uh, cabinet appointments. It's so political at this point. It's so partisan. It's almost right. become a zero-sum game, as I like to talk about yeah. it, where it's almost teams at this point, and your team has to lose for mine to win. Yeah. What do you think ultimately the solution is to that, to the, the partisanship? I mean, what is it really going to take to cut that out? I'm generally more of an optimist in these things. And I would say, looking at it from the basis of sort of historically, from when I came to D.C. 30 years ago, it is significantly more partisan. It is significantly more difficult to get bipartisan legislation through. I think the fault on that is on both parties. I think some very positive things happened and in the energy space within the context of the last year. You look at Senator Murkowski and Senator Cantwell, Republican, Democrat, chairman, ranking member of the Senate Energy Committee, who came very close last year to getting a bipartisan energy package through to the president. That was a notable effort, I think, showed a lot of discipline on both sides to work together across the aisle. I thought it set a good precedent. We may be enduring a chill in the snowstorm, but I think there are some flowers poking through the snow. And my hope is that that begins to grab on and, and grab hold and that more folks who come into elective office recognize you got elected to go to Washington to try to make things happen, not just to stop things. And it's it, it makes for a pretty long day when you're just saying no all the time. And hopefully both sides will get to their senses at some point and really focus on what's important for the American people. I've talked to a couple of people about carbon mm -hmm. and greenhouse gases. It yeah. would seem that this president going in, you're not going to see anything happen during his administration. But then I've heard people say that, look, there may be some movement on carbon. Do you think there's going to be any movement on any kind of greenhouse gas, even the methane emission issue? I think the jury is still a little bit out on that particular one. What I would say, I think that there will be an active engagement on the part of the Trump administration to see where we go with the Paris Accords. I think some folks are, are concerned that they're just going to walk away. I don't think that's going to happen. I think there will be an engagement and some changes from where we were in the Obama administration, but I think there will be some additional movement forward. There's been a lot of talk about the impacts that Ivanka Trump, um, the president's daughter, is going to have on policies. More recently, we've seen that play its way out in, in the issue of child care as, as an initiative. Global warming is one that is important to Ivanka. And so I think despite some of the things that have occurred and some of the views of of folks, including our new EPA administrator, I don't think the full story has been heard yet. I really think there's going to be an increasing push to not completely repeal it, but try to figure out something that makes sense from a balanced perspective that'll address some of the issues of global warming, at the same time not doing a lot of damage to our economy. One thing I would note, people thought George W. Bush was going to be an anti-carbon foe, but, but some of the largest greenhouse gas reduction efforts were made during his time. I don't think the picture's quite clear yet. I think we'll see more in the coming days and weeks ahead. Post-election, candidate Trump invited Al Gore up to Trump Tower, invited Leonardo DiCaprio up to Trump Tower. I'm sure they were not talking about what a fan he was of Romeo and Juliet. No, you know, not at all. <laughs> what do you think those conversations were about? I mean, I think the president was very much in a listening mode. And, and back to my earlier point, I do think Ivanka had something to do with getting some of that to happen. I don't think we're going to see the kind of global warming initiatives that were perhaps uh, envisioned by uh, Gore and Leonardo and others. I do think it's something that will be in the backdrop of other initiatives that will be made. You know, at the end of the day, 
way, there's an argument that you can have the creation of jobs, enhancement of the technology, and have economic outcomes that may take us in the right direction relative to reduction in greenhouse gas emitting pollutants. I, for one, am not willing to throw in the towel quite yet. You said you don't think that there will ever be another coal plant built in the United States. That's tough. In the absence of a carbon capture system, then I think that's right. What do you think coal's role is at this point? I talked to some people in West Virginia. They were pretty bullish on this idea of exports. You don't like it here? Go send it somewhere. Well, no, that's, uh, and, and there's something to be said for that. There are folks in the, obviously, who are very concerned about global warming who are concerned that we will be transferring that problem to someone else. There are countries in South America, in Central America, in Asia, and in Africa where coal for them makes sense. They need large baseload generating capabilities. Now, I spent a lot of time in the nuclear field. I think there's a lot of people in our arena who look at that very same need for large baseload power generation and say, gee, we ought to find a way to create advanced nuclear technologies and try to provide that power resource. There's clearly a power need. How we meet that, hopefully there's some good American clean technologies we can get there. You're one of the authorities that the media went to during Fukushima. I've often asked myself, what does a tsunami have to do with scuppering plans for <laughs> nuclear plants in the Midwest? When the earthquake hit the Fukushima plants, they worked very well. They, they, they did as they were designed. It was the tsunami that took out the plants and caused the problem. And frankly, when you look back at it, those plants were not located where they should have been. Fukushima came at a time in which the U.S. was going through a very very severe economic circumstance as we were around the world. And the confluence of Fukushima and the confluence of the economic meltdown layered with a reduction in the price of natural gas really collaborated to really put new nuclear units in a very difficult position going forward. You're a NRC commissioner. Explain what that role entailed. I was a commissioner of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and that commission is responsible for regulating all of the civilian uses of radioactive materials. Right now, the agency has about 3,600 employees. It's headed up by five commissioners appointed by the president and confirmed by the United States Senate, each of whom has a five-year term. So they have staggered terms. No more than three of them may be from either party, so it's a bipartisan commission and has worked generally in a bipartisan fashion because nuclear safety is, after all, um, not a partisan issue. That agency regulates currently 99 operating nuclear power plants, nuclear power plants that have been decommissioned. It's responsible for the licensing of the Yucca Mountain project if that is reproposed by the Department of Energy under, under Rick Perry. NRNC inspectors are at every unit around the country, and so they've got a very important role in ensuring the safety and security of the U.S. nuclear fleet. What do most people not know about it? You know, I sort of call it the Boy Scout agency in the U.S. government is very non-political, probably 10% of their workforce being PhDs. They serve as a model for regulators around the world. The work that the agency does to protect the nuclear fleet in the U.S., uh, not only is that vital, but the impact that the U.S. has internationally on ensuring the safety of the 440 plus nuclear power plants around the world is critical as well. Jeff, thank you so much for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. There you have it, my interview with Jeff Merrifield, former NRC commissioner and partner at Pillsbury, a D.C.-based law firm. And we alluded to this in the interview. During the Fukushima nuclear crisis in 2011, Jeff found himself on several national programs as an expert. When we first sat down, I asked him how comfortable he was with interviews. And when he reminded me that he'd been on Fox News, my concerns were put to rest. Special thanks to E4 Carolinas, 
David, Monica, and Kelly, you are the best. All interviewees are sent the raw and finished recordings of this podcast prior to the release every week to ensure they are represented fairly. Be sure to check out pictures on Instagram. My handle is Host Energy, and on our website, that's energy-cast.com. Music was composed by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up Episode 9. Episode 10 will be something a little different. Stretched out over a few weeks, we'll be taking a look at one of the largest energy deals in the history of finance. You won't want to miss it. I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time.